Hi, I'm Ahmad. Hi, I'm Steve, and this is Exploration Radio. Picture this, it's a very remote part of the world, shortly after the Soviet-Afghanistan war in a remote, inhospitable part of southwestern Pakistan. A white guy from BHP, an Australian company, comes to this frontier land to explore. This is the story about the courage to take on the frontiers of our planet, but most of all it's the story about a partnership to enter and effectively work in a new and at times challenging destination. We talk about learning, how not to ride a camel, how to build contacts and how to build trust in a new culture. This is a story about a bond, about a friendship. In today's episode we interview the two people who drove the discovery of Rico Dick, Alan Moore and Sada Sain. This is a page turner, or whatever you call it in podcast land. Now there's a reason why this story is important to me. It's because it's a personal story. It involves my homeland. I was born in Pakistan and I grew up there. But even more, the story involves a family member. The guy named Saad that you'll hear in the story? Well, he's my uncle. And although I'm not related to Alan, you could say he's a family member as well. You'll understand why by the end of the story. Now this story really starts in the early 90s. I was a young kid then, more obsessed with becoming the next Sachin Tendulkar than worrying about mineral exploration. But I remember my uncle starting to work for BHP, and I remember seeing Alan and Saad's partnership develop, and it did leave a lasting impression on me. Something I didn't realize until I was in a position where I had to do country entry and mineral exploration in frontier terrains myself. Ultimately, I came to the realization for frontier exploration programs to be successful, they rely a lot on the type of partnership and relationship that Alan and Saad fostered. So looking back, I think there's a lot I could have learned from Alan and Saad. So this week's episode on Exploration Radio is how to do frontier exploration, the discovery story of Rick Dig in Southwest Pakistan. First of all, thanks a lot for doing this, guys. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, thank you for organizing it, Ahmed. That is Alan Moore, who in the early 1990s was a geologist working for BHP and was the person responsible for getting BHP interested in Pakistan. Can I, I put my perspective in? The thing that interests me about the story is I'm, I'm not familiar with the details, is it just tells me a great deal about country entry, moving into frontiers. It's just such a a great personal story. The beginnings of the story is just, it just sounds wonderful. Okay, depends what your definition of wonderful is, but uh, <laughs> I'll, go, uh, I'll go along with it. Exciting. Frontier. Exciting. It was exciting. It was a very, um, very good time of life, if you like, because I'm not sure we could repeat it today. Well, that itself is worth talking about. So let's start at the beginning, Alan. Where did the interest in geology start? Was that at university? You know, the, it's the usual thing, volcanoes and dinosaurs, and it's exciting stuff. Okay. Uh, when, when I went to uni and I wanted to do the science degree, I chose, well, actually, they did a psychological test, first of all, uh, which was based on some weird questions. They said, do you want to grow carrots or plant beans? Uh, would you rather be a hammer or a nail? Yeah. Based on that, I went to an um, advisor <laughs> who said, oh, on the, on the basis of your psychological test, we really think you ought to do languages and fine arts. So I said, right, well, that's based on those tests, isn't it? He said, yes. I said, well, in that case, I'll do science. <laughs> that's perfect. Uh, so this is all in South Africa, is that That's right? all in South Africa. So did you know anything about mineral exploration before you got into geology, or was it just an no, interesting no. career? Oh, just geology is interesting. I mean, it's an incredible subject. 
you cover everything, biology, physics, chemistry, history. Uh, rocks are wonderful things to look at. Fascinating. How do they form? Where do they go? Why are they there? Yeah, great subject. And that was what you did your master's on, obviously, in geology? Yes. And that was in Australia? So what brought about the move to Australia? Oh, well, I was a bit involved in politics. Actually, no, a little bit more than a bit. And I was very uncomfortable. So uh, I decided of the places I'd like to go, Australia sounded good. So I applied and they said, oh, if you want to come to Australia, we'll pay some of your fare. So they, they, I said to my wife, I said, well, who wasn't my wife at the time, obviously, I said, I'm going to Australia, do you want to come? And she said, well, we're not married. And I said, well, we can fix that. So she was 19. So I said, you've got a choice. You can either wait here and come later or come with me. And she wasn't going to come with me unmarried in those days. So we got married. Oh, wow. We're still married. <laughs> That's a pretty good innings, Alan. It's a very good choice on her part. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so did you start working straight after uni? I first of all worked for Kaminka and, uh, and there was a lot of family pressure to go back to South Africa because of children and grandchildren and uh, they persuaded me things were different. So I went back, uh, I got a job at the University of Cape Town teaching okay. uh, and that didn't work out and I got even more involved in politics which was becoming quite disastrous, to be sort of frank, and then uh, managed to get a job over here back with BHP. Oh, wow. Relief! It was wonderful to come back to my home. <laughs> I, I was never comfortable in, in South Africa. It was always a... I was born there. My father was a, started his life there as a missionary, but um, I never really fitted in with the socio-economic and political particularly the racial views. I had a, I had a friend who's uh, classified uh, as uh, coloured because they had funny classifications. And I would forever be putting my foot in it. I'd say, Chris, let's go down to the beach. And he'd say, which one? Because you know, there were black beaches and white beaches, you see. And I'd say, oh, I'm sorry, Chris. It wasn't, it wasn't a good time. I mean, that's fascinating. I think that would have been a fascinating time to grow up. One way to describe it. <laughs> so you're obviously in BHP for a long, long time. How did Pakistan come about? The management at the time decided they would like to expand into uh, other parts of the world, South America, uh, particularly after they bought uh, Utah. They wanted to expand in general, and that included Asia. So they set up a system in, in Melbourne where they allocated different parts of Asia for areas of interest. And we started off with a chap called Alistair Edwards and, and me. The, the running paradigm at the time was everybody was into terrains and searching at different sorts of terrains. Alistair and I started building up a terrain map of Asia, which I think was before any terrain map was published, but of course being confidential, it was never published. And on the basis of that, various areas were selected in China, Vietnam, India, Mongolia. We made a visit to Mongolia and so on to try and expand the exploration program into Asia. And they divided it up into different areas. And I was allocated uh, South Asia, which included Nepal, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan. Other people were interested in China. 
they even went as far as Iran. Uh, there was a group who was looking at Iran. But most of the focus, for some reason, was on China. And it was a bit of a struggle to get them to go further in India and Pakistan. Was that because of politically or was I can't I can't really say. I just think that they were they had sort of rose coloured spectacles with uh, China and the people who were interested in Iran were more senior management. Uh, I see Saad looking with a little smile on his face. He might remember some of the people who were involved. It was very hard to deal with them and bring them to focus on, on Pakistan and uh, India. I, I struggled to get some of the management to come and visit areas. Eventually, I actually went over to India with an Australian trade mission, Pakistan with an Australian trade mission. What did you know about Pakistan before this trade mission? It was a, a Islamic country dominated by uh, Islamic religion. But apart from that, I didn't know a great deal. Not a lot to say about a country. So what was your uh, first trip to Pakistan like? Can you describe it? Was it culture shock? Well, I, by then I'd travelled over to uh, China and uh, I'd been to Mongolia. Mm-hmm. So it, was, it wasn't a total culture shock. I, I mean, coming from Africa, you're used to different population groups. So, for example, from South Africa, I'd worked in Namibia, I'd worked in uh, Lesotho. So you, I'm familiar with different cultures to some extent, but every culture is different. For example, um, I did learn very quickly you don't shake somebody's hand full on, uh, particularly if it's a female. <laughs> I learned that fairly quickly. I, I just treat people as I, as I find them, and hopefully they'll treat me the same, and they'll be patient with me if I, if I make a boo-boo. This is a really important part, I think, having experienced it before. I think you're a little bit more able to do it than someone who isn't. You had the ability to do that, I think, a lot easier than other people. At this trade mission is the time that you met Saad, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, well, actually, he met me because <laughs> somehow the word got out there was this trade mission and I had a stream of people coming to the hotel or wherever the, the meetings were held, looking to see if there was the possibility of a job with whatever was going to develop out of Australia. And Saad was one of this, this crowd. That's true. That is Saad Hussain, my uncle and the second person involved in this story. We, we met actually at dinner. I think it was a round table kind of a thing. And just by coincidence, you were sitting next to me. And uh, I guess we just started talking and you said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm with uh, British Petroleum and solar and, you know, exploration petroleum. But these guys are not interested in exploration at all. And I'm a little bored and stuff. At that time, I had no idea that you were looking for people. And so we got on into this conversation. And then uh, I recall you saying, well, why don't you come over and see me if you're uh, interested in changing jobs or something. And I said, sure, yeah, why not? Uh, like in Pakistan, they say there's no money involved in seeing, you know. So <laughs> so I said, well, I'll come and see you. And obviously, it was a fantastic uh, opportunity. So, yeah. Well, I must admit that Saar's got a much better memory than me. I'd forgotten about the dinner. Um, when we met, <laughs> because a lot, the food. Actually, a lot of people actually. I'm sorry, sir. What's that? I'm sorry. I'm interjecting. I'm saying I don't forget the food. You know, I remember every food I've ever had, including <laughs> the one. <that> you <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, I, I can I can vouch for that because at the Serena Hotel you identified everything that was there and which had been there the previous occasion. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up after the break, more about the discovery of Rekotik and the partnership between Alan and Saad. We started this episode by talking about how this exploration program was in the frontier region of the world. Now this is an audio podcast, so we can't really show you what the field area looked like, but let me try to describe it for you. The Rekotik deposit is in a place called Chagai Hills, or as the locals pronounce it, Chagi. So the Chagi field area sits in Balochistan which is the southwest province of Pakistan. In fact, Chagi is this triangular part of Balochistan that kind of wedges itself between Afghanistan to the north and Iran to the west. Aside from the northern regions of Pakistan, which sit really amongst the foothills of the Himalayas, this is probably the most remote and inaccessible part of Pakistan. In fact, the name Reko Dik, Reko means sand and Dik means gold. And that is probably a pretty appropriate name for this area. Basically, it's a desert with not much else around. There's no vegetation, there's no real water around. Most of the people living here are nomads. There are no major settlements, aside from Quetta, which is the provincial capital, several hundred kilometers away. In this interview, you'll often hear the name Daubendin, which is the nearest local town, and also Nukundi, which is the local village near Rekode. To give you an idea how remote and inaccessible this area is, in 1998, when Pakistan decided to test its nuclear weapons, they picked the Chagi Hills as the area to do them. If you'd like to know more, we'll have some maps and pictures up on our website, part of the show notes for this episode. This is a good point to maybe dig into your background, Saad Khalu. What did you study during university? Well, much to the dislike of my parents who wanted me to be a doctor, because my mother was a doctor and my three sisters were doctor, I pursued the field of engineering. So I didn't listen to my parents, I listened to my grandfather, who happened to be the first uh, telecom engineer in Pakistan when Pakistan was made in 1947. So I guess it's those childhood questions, you know. So he used to talk all about these uh, telephone factory that he was setting up in Haripur Hazara and how telecommunication worked. And then he started talking about these cables, these wires, you know. And obviously the questions then went into how do they work and it turned out that these are copper cables. So what the hell is copper? And so that uh, sort of started some interest on the metal side, so to say. Then I went to a missionary school called St. Patrick's in Karachi. Which school did you go to, Emma? I think it was the same one. (laughs) Same one, yeah, I thought so. Yeah. Anyway, so there we had a British teacher by the name of Mr. Shaw. And we were very impressed by him and he used to teach us chemistry, inorganic chemistry. And in that he, on one day, he taught us the fresh process, which is, you know, concerning the extraction of silver. So that very much interested me. And then obviously I started talking about metals and how are they extracted and so on. So that's how I got into engineering and metallurgical engineering. And I looked around and I saw that nearly Oh, I shouldn't say nearly everything, but most things are made of metals, right? Particularly the cars and, you know, the really exciting stuff and aeroplanes and all of that, rockets, so on. So I said, well, I mean, this metals is, uh, you know, is great. So let's go after that. And that's how I went into metallurgy, quite honestly. No other, just fascination with metals, I guess. 
So I've never heard this story, so this is, this is really cool. Now, you studied in Pakistan, but you also studied overseas. Now, I want to talk a little bit about travel. Did you travel much as a kid? Was it something you liked? Because you've traveled quite a lot as an adult. You often travel, actually. Yeah. Well, I think it's in my blood or in my DNA, I guess. My, because I did most of my primary schooling in the United States. My mother was working at Johns Hopkins and my father was doing a postdoctoral fellowship in civil aviation law. So I did go to the United States when I was very young. And then when I came back and we were very fond of traveling and uh, my parents uh, and I used to go every summer up country because most of our relatives lived uh, in Punjab or uh, you know in the upper parts and then we used to go into the mountains and so on. And uh, not only that, but uh, all my jobs, somehow, they involved a lot of travel. And uh, I was just counting the other day, I've been to 42 countries, actually. And most of these relate to work and uh, pleasure trips. And my wife also loves traveling, and I love traveling, my kids love traveling. We've driven from Karachi into China three times, all the way, with my three sons. So, yeah, I love traveling. Love meeting people, working with them, and... Uh, you know, I guess uh, people interest me more than anything else, I guess. So now let's get back to the, the trade dinner where you finally met Alan. Were you looking for a job at that time? Sort of, because uh, I saw that uh, BP uh, was going out of uh, exploration and um, I was the general manager of, uh, of their subsidiary company there called BP Solar. Then BP wanted to move out and set up a joint venture in Saudi Arabia. And at that time, I did not want to go to Saudi Arabia, having set up that joint venture, because my mother was uh, ill uh, with uh, leukemia, and I didn't want to leave her at that point. So I was, in a way, looking for a job, actually, yeah. And I did want to get back into minerals, because before that, I, uh, BP, I worked for... Uh, uh, Pakistan Industrial Development Corporation in Chagi, actually, for about eight years on an iron ore project and uh, also on a gypsum project uh, with the German-Pakistan joint venture near DG Khan. Yeah, so I wanted to get back into minerals, basically. So, Alan, I want to come back to you. At this trade combo that you were part of, you must have met probably hundreds of people. Well, Why I... did you pick Saad? Why did I pick Saad? Well, he picked me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was it was quite clear from the people I'd met that Saad was uh, somebody who stood out way above the the average. You know, he he was obviously uh, personable. He had character. He was very straight. You look someone in the eye, and you can tell usually what sort of person they're going to be. He wasn't pushy. He was quiet. He said that you know he was working with B, uh, BP Solar and was interested in, in a change of position to something with minerals. And if BHP Utah did, in fact, do something in Pakistan, he would be interested in being involved. It was as simple as that. Alan, how important was it for you to find someone local? Was that something you came to the preconceived idea? It actually wasn't in, in my head to start with because uh, my head was still filled with the idea of an exploration program and areas and trying to find my way around the, the new country, the structure of the bureaucracy and the legal side and so on. And when Saad appeared and obviously was a sort of person who, when I say obviously, you know, it's a case of making character judgments. In the conversation, it was quite clear that if I could work a relationship with Saad, 
it would make the job of getting into the country and explaining our purpose would be a lot easier. I have a philosophy that, you know, if you're working in Pakistan, it's a very good idea to have a Pakistani uh, teaching you how to operate. Uh, and if I'm working in China, it'd be good to have a Chinese person. And if you're working in Australia, it's probably good to have uh, somebody who's familiar with Australia. And so when I went back to Melbourne, I said, look, I've got the, this program, which I really like to institute. I've got somebody who can help us with uh, negotiation and uh, cultural differences and everything else. Can we put him on contract? Uh, and they said, no. So I said, well, if you want this to succeed, then you really have to put him on some side of a contract, preferably give him a job, you know, give him the same rights as any other employee. And they said, well, we can't do that, but we will put him on contract. So that was how the, the contract idea started. Do you think management often struggles with this concept about local control or local representation? It depends on, on the management. The situation in, in BHP Utah at the time, I don't think management really struggled with it in particular, but they were still very focused on we run the program. It became worse at the end when they appointed an English guy to take over the South Asia thing. It was obviously a conflict with me. Maybe I was too blunt or something. And they said, no, you, you've, got to have, uh, you've got to go and live in India and, and be the boss and tell people what to do. And I said, well, I'd much rather run India the same way as Pakistan, where we have a really competent person, and you just sit in the background and put forward what BHP wants, and they can get the, the jobs running. They speak the language, they know the culture. You know, you say, look, I would really like to do this. We need five employees of this caliber. They are more likely to find those five employees than you. Didn't work out. They wanted me to go and work in, in India and be the, the boss man. Uh, and I said, well, I've got a family. Um, my son is going through a difficult period. I would much rather have appoint some Indian gentleman to be the, the boss man and I'll just work with him at his side, just like we worked in Pakistan. I thought it worked pretty well, don't you, Sai? Oh, abs absolutely, Alan. Um, I mean, there's no two questions about that. And I think it's not just local presence. It's also... The fact that you yourself actually significantly contributed by playing the lead role in uh, in understanding the geology, the technical side of the project, because I had only two years of geology and engineering, you know, and I wasn't a, a geologist, so to say. All I knew was that these geologists go around with these crazy looking hammers and they beat the rocks and call each other, no worries, mate. And I kept on wondering, well, there's a lot of mating going around here. But, but yeah, I mean... I think it was the combination, the, the technical combination coming from your side uh, with regard to the program, its phasing, going from a regional reconnaissance to prospect level, the geological model, the, how should I say, the techniques, the methods, and geological best practices, not to mention the support that we used to get in terms of, let's say, the analyses of the sample the geochemical mapping the geological mapping and then later on drilling and drill core logging and all of that the technical side uh, was actually driving the program like it should our role uh, on the ground was to make sure it happens uh, in terms of the local conditions and understanding of the people the customs the traditions the language the difficult climate of chagi from 52 degrees in summer 
to minus 15 or 16 in winter in the terrain, the excess, all of that, the local stuff was uh, just as a support function of the main program. And Alan, I mean, hats off, you did a tremendous job, basically. I think this combination worked, and I think we got along exceptionally well together in more ways than just professional. I think we are still very close, uh, as you know, so it works out very well. And I think that this combination is actually essential for any new exploration program in any new country at a grassroots level. And it's unfortunate that managements do not perceive the importance of uh, this combination. I think that's a really, really important point. One of the things that I remember as a kid in the way that the two of you worked, there was this incredible level of trust and collaboration. It all worked as a give and take. I can't see how I could have achieved half of what we did without SAR. So I, I, I look at it as a, a twin program. There's one person looking at the technical side and the other one is looking at everything else. Coming up, we find out why BHP picked Chagai, what was it like working in the field at Chagai and dealing with the locals, and why Alan was the right expat to run this program. You're telling that story about the, the children who were following and you burst out laughing. And I said, what are you laughing at? You were saying, well, it was what the children were saying because they were saying that you know, he's a hardy man, but we're not going to get much. He's even poorer than we are. Look, he's eating pistachio nuts. <laughs> he's eating... He's eating pistachio nuts and look at, look at how dirty his clothes are, you know, because <laughs> but, but also, you, you actually went to pray and I held the water and I poured the water for you to wash before you went to pray. And then I got really upset because I did the water for you, but I didn't go and pray. <laughs> Obviously, you go beyond prayers because, you know, Sufis don't have to pray as much as these followers, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, have a good day, son. Oh yeah, yeah, wonderful days, excellent days. So I want to go back to how did you get to Chagai? You did an enormous amount of reconnaissance before you actually got to that location as well. I mean, you scoured most of the country before you got there. Well, I think basically it started off as a, a geological examination of the, uh, the country as a whole. And it was quite clear that the Chagai Hills area is, is quite prospective for copper and gold in particular. And again, copper and gold were target elements. The gold, because you can take a year's production in a suitcase, basically. And if there's a difficulty, and this is a point I was trying to make to management, because they were concerned about the politics and, and the agreements that could be made, the focus was on, on copper and gold as, as minerals, and that was an ideal, underexplored part of the world. Well, maybe I can interject here, Amal, because I, I, I distinctly remember the trips that uh, I and Alan made all over the country. So we went first to visit the Geological Survey of Pakistan and went through all their archives and dusty old libraries and maps and tried to find out any reports written on different uh, mineral prospects or discoveries and then we went to the provincial headquarters you know like in Peshawar and Lahore and Karachi and so on looked at provincial data whatever was available published or otherwise and we met the geologists there 
And then we made a very uh, large number of field trips. Like, for example, we went along the Makran coast, uh, which at one time we thought had prospects for mineral sands. Then that was at sea level, and then we went up to, you know, Wakhan. I don't know if you're familiar with Wakhan. That's the point where the borders of uh, China, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and ex-Russia meet. And there's a peak there, it's called Trichmir. Uh, if I remember correctly, it's 5,000 meters or something. We went up to that point, uh, north of Chitra. So basically, we, we looked at the data, the regional maps that could be available, and then we did field visits just to get the idea of it. And then, uh, obviously, eventually we focused on Chali. So this is, I think, uh, an important point as well. Some people don't quite realize that it takes uh, quite a significant amount of time and effort to actually narrow it down to an area that you can work on, especially when you start with a country. You know, Pakistan is a relatively small country, but it's still quite a lot of area to go through and find areas that are interesting and then finally narrow an area down. It's a small country, but it's got a, a tremendous variety of rocks. It's got a tremendous uh, topography variation and climatology variation. You know, we, we did settle on the Chagai Hills, but we did actually have very brief reconnaissance trips elsewhere. So you've now picked Chagai. I'll start with you, Alan. What were your first impressions to the field area? What do you remember from that time? I mean, Chagai Hills is a remote area that most Pakistanis haven't been to and probably don't know where it sits. What did you think of that area when you first got there? Well, I did my, my doctorate in Central Australia and uh, I did a lot of uh, work for uh, Rio Tinto in Namibia, both of which are very similar. I might as well, you know, if I close my eyes and I'd taken off my Sherlock Amis, um, put on shorts, I would have been in Australia. And people probably spoke just as incoherent a language there as they did in Pakistan, so that's <laughs> You're talking about Pichanchachala? <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, no. Um, the, the local people were incredibly hospitable, very friendly. And I don't know if Saad remembers the one case where that chap was carrying his child to go to the local clinic down in Nokundi or Yakmut. And uh, we weren't sure which valley we were in and we stopped to ask him. And he was prepared to walk with us to show us where to go rather than, than take his child, who I think had malaria. You know, it was a bit of a persuasion to say, no, no, we've got the information, you go, take your child. And the other one that struck me was when we called it, uh, there was that tent with a little black material over the top, and they wanted to kill a goat because we were, we were guests. And it took Saad a lot of persuading to say no, you know. Yeah, very, very hospitable people, Alan, and uh, I think it's so, part of their, of their culture. It's also part of their tradition that guests and particularly travelers are held in very high esteem, and even it's uh, part of our religion that travelers have to be looked after. I remember another instance, and um, you weren't there with me, Alan, but there was this uh, myself, and if you remember, after the driver, he and I were doing some... Uh, sampling north of Dalbandin and we saw this guy, you know, coming through the desert mirage, so to say, approaching our vehicle and uh, this driver turns to me and he says, oh, he himself is a Balochi and he said, oh, here comes uh, another Balochi and, you know, we will have to share our meal with him. So I just kept quiet to that and this uh, Balochi, you know, tall, wearing a turban, weather-beaten face, 
uh, he strides right into you know where we were sitting he sits down he just says assalamu alaikum and he had a sort of a long cloth in which he was holding something at his back and carrying it and he places the cloth in front of us and he looks around uh, there are three of us so the cloth contained a watermelon and he cut the watermelon into three parts <laughs> and he gave each of us including himself one third of the watermelon and here was this driver saying look you know i mean we have another balochi coming and we'll have to share food with him and this guy was walking you know about 30 kilometers south to talbandin was willing to share his only food one watermelon with absolute strangers so it's unbelievable i mean uh, i can never forget such instances and th- these are the reasons why this country still survives because basically the people are genuine and they are extremely extremely good people but that's a different story of why we are where we are in pakistan i found that really quite remarkable that these people who have nothing are so prepared to share what they have with complete strangers uh, a generosity which i think we've lost in the west So how much of that is uh from your side Alan I think you're someone that has cultural awareness you know you wore the national Pakistani dress the shalwar kameez out in the field how much do you think your the way you behave helped you acclimatize to the locals I don't know if I can answer that because I can only see it from my perspective rather than interpret it from someone else Saad might be a better person to answer that Yeah yeah I'd like to say something on that I think uh, one of the the significantly strong qualities Alan had was his sensitivity and caring about other people he would uh, basically if you ask me he stood out from amongst all the other people the company had in terms of this quality uh, you know I don't know whether I should say this or not but other people on our team thought that these visitors coming from Mars you know basically that's what they thought uh, were a little sort of uh, aloof or even arrogant at times and here you have alan who is very warm and caring has a smile on his face soft spoken the other good quality which alan had was about his ability to coach and he would uh, he would sit and explain things at great length to everybody whoever was involved in the work Uh, he would show us how to sample how to save how to map the only thing he didn't teach us was how to ride a camel but <laughs> other than that <laughs> i think we learned a lot and i think that was the the real quality and as you know ahmed in our culture and tradition the teacher is the is a source of tremendous respect in fact Uh, I may ex- extend this a little further later on I got involved in HR and I I've done a lot of work in HR for the last 20 years now and actually the whole concept of management is changing and now the west realizes that uh, managers actually do not have to exercise power or authority or threat or fear the the primary quality of a manager should be the ability to inspire others and in cultures people get inspired by many different aspects of a manager in pakistan uh, in most of the oriental countries people or subordinates or peers get inspired 
in a learning environment where they are provided learning through a coach. And uh, Emma, you notice the concept of, of star. I don't know how to explain that. Uh, on the good side, mechanics, auto shops, you know. We have an Ustad who's the head mechanic and he teaches young kids who are like children who learn the trade on the job. Similarly, that extension of uh, the concept of management is quite pervasive in Oriental countries. So here, if you want to really be a good manager, is to be able to coach and to inspire people and to lead in this manner because leadership requires fellowship. And followers will follow a teacher here more than a snobbish manager, if I may say. So, Alan was just uh, fitting into this whole scenario. I mean, and, and he's a tremendous person that way. So, even if Alan doesn't want to say it, I, I can very well vouch for what he is not saying. I think that's a really, really important point. You want loyalty from people. We have to give them something that they want rather than what you think they want. I think the mark of a good leader or a good manager is recognizing that, that in different cultures, different things are valued. Yeah, and also, uh, I don't know, I've had exposure to all kinds of people from many countries, you know, Germans and Chinese and Arabs and North Americans and Australians and you name it and so on. Um, every culture has got a different... Uh, uh, you know, mindset and behavior and attitude and value system. Now, the job of a manager is to be sensitive to that and to uh, present himself as a compatible partner to that situation and to that culture and to that uh, to that project. So, Alan did that very well. I mean, in fact, you fit in with the culture, with the people, and he generated a tremendous amount of reciprocal respect, you see, which I think is essential in all of these environments, whether you're doing geology or any other project for that matter, basically. So I distinctly remember seeing photos of Alan wearing the national dress, the shivakamis in the field. I'm sure you have some other stories to add to that, Sabhalu. The dress he used to wear was, uh, he looked more Pakistani than me when he went into the north, you know, for example. <laughs> and Alan may not remember, but, uh, you know, he used to wear this white sparkling shalwar kameez and turban. And I would tell him, Alan, you just don't say anything because your accent will give you away. You just sit in front of the vehicle where the chief usually sits, you know, next to the driver. And as usual, my smaller self will sit at the back and uh, very soon he became to be known as a Sufi. I remember, Alan, if you remember, on one of these trips, we went to this place called Dashtikan. Now, this Dashtikan is about a kilometer and a half from Afghanistan, right? And uh, there is this huge uh, mazar, as we call it. What is a mazar in English, Ahmed? Uh, I mean, it's like a... Like a place of worship, something like that? A place of worship and a mausoleum of a saint or something? Yep. So here is this Sufi Alan. Obviously, nobody knew his name. Sufi Saab is now coming to visit this mausoleum <laughs> to pay his respects. And uh, fair enough, I mean, very close to the mausoleum, there was a well. 
and uh, obviously the well was dug up right down to 40 feet so all the rocks that were <laughs> in the strata were right on the surface and you didn't have to do any drilling. <laughs> we had Alan going around with his geological interest and looking at all of those rocks with his lenses and breaking them up and all. So people got a little worried. No, this is a very strange kind of Sufi. Instead of offering prayers, he's going after these rocks. <laughs> I've forgotten about the hitting of the rocks there at uh, Dashtakan. Um, oh, but, uh, you know, his dress uh, and his uh, composure and his calmness, uh, whatever, that gave people the, the conviction that he is one of those revered religious sort of Sufis. And one guy came up to me and he said that, can I have a taviz? Well, a taviz is like an amulet, you know, something which you wear around your neck or something. Because uh, I'm sort of infertile, you know, I need to get back to fertility. Maybe he can give me some amulet for that. Obviously, Alan doesn't know all of this or maybe I haven't told him. So I had to then extricate Alan from those rocks and make a sort of a graceful exit before he started examining the sky for its fertility. <laughs> so he, he, he How much of a component is having fun when you're working out there? You're obviously in areas that you don't necessarily want to be in. You're doing some pretty tough work. Did you think that the way you ran the project was fun? Did your team have fun while they were out there? Yeah, I think we, the question is, is making a team with the right kind of people who have the right competences. And by competencies, I don't mean just technical competencies because there was a dearth of that. So we had to look at people who were really interested uh, to work in, uh, in these terrains and environment, who had an adventurous nature. Uh, who had had exposure to such uh, field trips and uh, who would be able to survive in those uh, in those conditions. So those qualities we were looking for because you know we, we used to go on a four by four and then uh, on a motorcycle, Russian smuggled motorcycle, and then we used to go on camels and then at the end we were doing twenty kilometer treks a day. You know doing sampling. It was 9,000 square kilometers, you know, not a small area. So you have to have people who have the physical stamina and the interest and the survivability in this terrain and who are genuinely keen on learning because um, if you're learning and enjoying, that's the best kind of working environment actually. So it's a question of selecting the right team basically. When you're in an, in an area, you, you have to be able to interact with the people and you have to understand the culture and the traditions and uh, also enjoy yourself at the same time actually. So your vocation actually should be your vocation in a way. You, know. you go there to enjoy yourself and to learn and to work. So, they, so you guys have talked about some of the better times in the field. What were some of the challenging times in the field? Well, Alan, you go first. I don't think you can say that any of the times are really terrible. I do remember going up Koi Sultan and finding a place full of armaments and bullets and taking a photograph and then getting out very quickly because that was right next to the Afghan border. But I never really felt uncomfortable or frightened or anything like that. Did you ever feel unsafe? 
while you were in the field? Not really. Uh, maybe I was naive. Maybe I should have felt unsafe, but I never did. And I basically took my cue from, from Saad and the, the people who, were, who I was with. If, if they had made a suggestion, look, we should get out of here or not spend any time here, I would have gone on that. But I don't think I ever got the impression that they were scared. And if they weren't scared and we'd made an effort to be friendly towards the local people, mm -hmm. as I say, it was a different time. Uh, it was a time before the Taliban and it was a time before uh, Al-Qaeda and so on. So, you know, you, you can't compare it with today. Would you go back there now, Alan? I think I'd be reluctant to go back there now, apart from the fact that I'm physically not as strong as I was then. But, uh, yeah, I think I'd be more worried because of what's happened with the, the murder of those lawyers in Quetta, for example. I, I mean, when I was in Quetta, I was quite happy to walk around the streets and greet people and so on. I don't think I'd do that today as a European, uh, even if I was wearing local dress. Um, I think I would stand out. And we know what happens to, to hostages and so on. So why would I want to do that in today's environment? I don't know if Saad has got a comment on that. Even though at that time uh, we had about 3 million Afghan refugees in Chagi who had come down from uh, Afghanistan because of the war over there. And they all were settled in tents. It was a sea of tents where they were living. Despite all of that, uh, we still did the exploration and we never felt unsafe in those days, actually. And we also knew that there was smuggling going on. It was a major drug route down from Afghanistan through Pakistan to the coast and then to other parts of the world. We also encountered smugglers, but there was no conflict with the smugglers obvious, for obvious reasons. And uh, they just went past us and at times they said, oh, this is just another survey party. So, <laughs> harmless, uh, unarmed, uh, people crazy to work in the field, so they just went past us and we were okay. Actually, we were protected by the locals themselves, and there's another story about the local chieftain, Noshirwan. I don't know, Alan, if you remember this guy, Noshirwan. Is he, is he the guy that made you come back after you went through at midnight or something? Yeah, 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 the same guy. Well, you know, Noshevan was a local chieftain, and the story is as old as 1978 when I went to Chagi the first time when I came back from the U.S. And uh, I was working on this magnetized iron prospect in Chagi, north of Nukendi, and that is the Sanjani tribe area, and he's the chief of Sanjani. And uh, there was one well about uh, 20 kilometers away from where we were getting water for our diamond coat drilling, and um, he owned that well. And he wanted that we should hire 11 of his tribal people. And I said, look, I don't have any authority to hire people, but uh, we'll see how it goes when we need laborers or staff like that to work on the drill sites at Selfers, we'll hire them. But he wasn't uh, agreeable to that, so he cut off the water supply. So the well was there and we couldn't get the water. And we survived for three weeks uh, just eating dal, you know, lentils and rice and water. So such was the reaction of that tribe at that time. And then I had to smuggle myself out in a water tanker because he would only allow one tanker of water per week. So I smuggled myself out inside the water tanker and went to Nokundi, which was quite a distance away, and spoke to the military over there. 
So the military came to rescue us. So in the middle were our people, our camp, surrounded by Sanjaranis. And the Sanjaranis were surrounded by the army. <laughs> and I thought it would turn out to be Custer's last stand, um, like in the West. And uh, this is 79, you know, and uh, I then pleaded with Sanjani Nosherwan and told him, look, there's going to be a bloodbath out here because you can't stop water and this, that and the other. And the army will take action. Those were days in which the army was taking action. So finally he understood, then uh, we arranged a meeting between the army captain and Nosherwan Sanjani and everything was sorted out and we hired five of his people, he gave water for the rest of the drilling program and so on. But in the whole process he became an extremely close and good friend. And when uh, BHP came over, he was of tremendous help to us and a very, very close friend as I said. So one of these occasions, uh, he said, well, now from now on, you are like my tribal brother. I said, very good. But the tribal brother has certain responsibilities to fulfill. He has to present himself to the other tribal brother whenever he is passing that area. <laughs> so his house was in Dalbandin, and I went past Dalbandin in the night because I think it was late in the night. We didn't want to disturb him. But somehow he learned that I, this tribal brother, Saad, had passed his house or Dal Bandin, and he hadn't come to pay his respects, so to say. So he sent his armed team behind me to force me to come back. Can you believe it? And uh, they forced me to come back, drive back maybe 100 kilometers, come back, have a meal with them. I said, now you can go. <laughs> so these are the tribal customs of <laughs> hospitality, compulsory hospitality, if I may say. Too many stories. <laughs> Yeah, we could go on all night. Got very little to do with geology. I guess one of the points we want to make is that when you go into these frontier areas, it's not all about the technical value of the program. There's a lot of other things that play just as equally an important a part. And yeah. I don't think people sometimes value that part as much as they probably should. Well, I, I think one of the things that comes out of it is that a lot of this work is successful if relationships are built up. I don't think you can just go in uh, as some people, some managers want you to do, go in and say, this is what we're doing and get on and do it. A lot of it's based on relationships and, and trust. Yeah, absolutely. And if I may add, Alan, is that relationships are built on trust and uh, trust comes through performance and reliability of promises. Yeah. Uh, what one passes each other. And yeah. uh, promises can only be known if one communicates and has a sense of empathy. So bedrock is continuous communication and, uh, and an empathy for, for each other and then building around that. It's essential. I think that's the untold story for a lot of discoveries that people perhaps don't acknowledge at that time. Now you both left PHP at different times. I think, Alan, you left in 1994, 1995? That's, that's correct. They, they wanted me to live in India. Uh, and that's when I declined, and then they said, well, if, if you don't want to go and live in India, we don't have a job for you. Simple as that. That old chestnut. <laughs> yeah, which, which is a little disappointing because, I mean, I'd already been involved in the discovery of one gold mine, uh, the major mineral sands deposit down in southwest uh, Australia, which I named, and, of course, the, the work in Pakistan. So it was a bit of a kick to the stomach, if you like. So, Alan, what was your motivation as an exploration geologist? 
Well, I, I like geology and I didn't like working on the mines, so the place to go is exploration. I love geology, I love the rocks, they're fascinating. I mean, it's like reading a very big history book. I love history. <laughs> so Alan, how much were you motivated by recognition? Is that something that you really valued? I think if you're successful in whatever you do, whether it's writing a book or producing a film or creating an interview with uh, old geologists, you want to be recognized. You want to say, well, you know, somebody to pat you on the back and say, oh, you did a good job or, you know, get off your butt and do something properly. So I think it's a natural human desire to be recognized for good work. Do you think in the end that's one of the things BHP failed to give you? And that's one of the reasons why you left? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. For example, the, the mineral sand deposits that I discovered down, well, well my team discovered down in uh, southwestern Australia, I never was allowed to publish the information because they kept saying, oh, it was so, uh, gave the company such a big advantage. And then managers who had absolutely nothing to do with it went and spoke to the press and said, oh, well, it's fluviatile in nature and it's uh, Cretaceous, not tertiary in age. So they were giving away all the information which I think would have been uh, the critical information. It was a new model. I was never allowed to publish that. And um, Saad, in your case, you left BHP, I think it was much later, 99, something like that? Let me see now. You're asking me when I was really young, actually. Um, yeah, 99. Yeah, that's right. Again, uh, we'd gone through a lot of work by then. We completed the drilling and We'd done a social impact assessment and study, and they were working on a pre-feasibility also. Mm -hmm. But they were fed up with Karachi, I guess, and they wanted to move to Islamabad, which I didn't want to because my wife was working in Karachi. I couldn't do that. I had an MBA degree, and I got really interested in, uh, in people and in, in the HR side and management, so to say, because I thought that this combination of engineering and management and project work, whether it was field work in geology or, or projects of a metallurgical nature before in other jobs, would enable me to get another job in a manufacturing concern. And sure enough, I was lucky to find a job in Toyota. And I worked there for about nine years and then moved on and for the remaining years into HR. And I love HR because uh, it helps me develop people. It helps me work with people of different nationalities and cultures and backgrounds. And it's really rewarding if you find people who actually do well in life because of some contribution you've made. So I continue to teach uh, at the MBA program and I continue to work in organizations to try to transform them and to instill uh, human capital which enables them to grow and I love doing that and I learned a lot of that actually while working in Charlie how to handle people and what coaching is all about and like I said earlier uh, this is something which uh, which I realized working with Alan that how it's not just the technical professional part of the person's competence is how you are able to enable people in their careers, which is far more important because that's how you develop leadership and that's how you transform organizations. 
So, well, that's the reason why I basically left. And it's unfortunate that uh, this project hasn't come about as yet. Very unfortunate. But I'm sure that the resources there that at some time, maybe hopefully in our lives, this would be tapped and it would contribute towards the betterment of everybody, all parties, foreign or local or whatever. Your lasting memory of the time that you guys worked together? No, I don't think there's any single thing that I can pinpoint, but uh, I think one, one thing that's come out of it is, is a lasting friendship with Saad and his family. So if I've got a lasting memory, it's the pleasure that I've had working with somebody like Saad, particularly in today's environment where, you know, you just say, oh, he's from Pakistan, and they immediately think, oh, maybe he's a terrorist. <laughs> there, there seems to be a, a terrible uh, association of a nationality with a particular group or political view, whereas in fact we're all individuals, and you get good Pakistanis and bad ones, you get good Australians and bad ones, and if I was in trouble and I, I really needed help, I would be able to call on, on Saad if he was in the sort of position that would be able to help, and I have great respect for him, so if I come away with anything from the time in Pakistan, it is Thank goodness I'm inside. Well, I, I can just reciprocate what, uh, what Alan has said. And I think the, the real thing which has come out of it is not so much what, we, what work we did, but really it's, uh, it's the kind of relationship that our families have developed and also the kind of uh, you know, closeness that we have, even though we are thousands of miles away. All because you went to a dinner. That's perfect. So you see, it all starts from food, basically, Alan. <laughs> At the start of this episode, we told you that this was the discovery story of a deposit called Rekote. But in fact, we actually didn't cover any of the technical aspects of that discovery. We have to confess, that wasn't an oversight. In our opinion, the relationship that Alan and Saad created was just as important a contributing factor to the discovery than any other technical work that was done on the project. In frontier terrains, in these hard to get to places, in these challenging environments, it's the relationships that you build with the local people and the collaboration that you have within the team that are the real ingredients to success or failure on those projects. So you have to learn to respect each other, trust each other, and ultimately to work with each other to everyone's benefit. The real discovery story of Rekotik is a chance meeting at a trade dinner between two people. One, a South African-Australian with a high social IQ and cultural awareness, and a Pakistani looking for a new challenge and a chance to work with a like-minded individual. So I hope you enjoyed our version of the story of the discovery of Rekotik. If you'd like to know more about the discovery of Rekotik, we'll have some material up on our website as part of the show notes. So join us next week for another episode of Exploration Radio. Come join us and let's explore.